All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. I'm Glenda Sleeb, and you're listening to Powerful with Jeff Kuller. Welcome to today's show, and a couple of quick notes. First of all, there are a couple of F-bombs in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. And you might find yourself wondering why I've been focusing the last couple of episodes on the topic of addiction. Isn't this show about power? Yes, it is, but I don't think we can fully appreciate or understand power unless we can examine the other side of power, which of course is powerlessness. And I can't think of a more pervasive societal issue that my listeners can connect to in a meaningful way than addiction. Chances are extremely high that you have someone in your life who struggled or is struggling with one form of addiction or another, including yourself. And the reality is that the opioid crisis has killed 13,000 people in this country in the last couple of years. In fact, in 2018, someone died of an overdose every two hours, every day, for 365 days. That's just shy of 4,600 deaths in this country. And the other reality is that we're just lagging our feet uh, at the system level through our healthcare, education, and our governance institutions, and as a society in the continued stigma and the rather arbitrary criminalizing of drug users in this country. Which brings us to today's guest, who's been at ground zero of the drug war in this country, living and working in the downtown east side of Vancouver, Canada's hotspot for the heroin overdose epidemic of the mid-1990s and the fentanyl crisis of today. He's an award-winning documentarian, longtime community organizer, writer, activist, and musician. He's the host and executive producer of Crackdown, a new monthly podcast about drugs, drug policy, and the drug war, led by drug user activists and supported by research. Each episode of Crackdown tells the story of a community fighting for their lives. It's also about solutions, justice for those who've been lost, and ultimately, it's about saving lives. You should definitely check it out at www.crackdownpod.com, and they're at crackdownpod on Twitter. He's also been an opioid user for years, injecting heroin daily, all the way through the last overdose crisis, and is now on a daily methadone program that's given him the ability to re-engage meaningfully in his community. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Garth Mullins. Garth, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So why don't we start with kind of who you are and what it is you do. You're, you've got, a, it seems like a lot of different things on the go. You've got a, your own podcast, you do some writing, you're in, a, you're in some bands, is that correct? Um, give us an overview of, of Garth. Yeah, um, well, I guess uh, I'm primarily an activist, you know, so uh, I've been involved in a lot of struggles. Uh, I've been a, a drug user for a lot of my life, uh, using heroin and then methadone now. <clears throat> and uh, I guess I've just lost a lot of friends, so I've become, uh, you know, with many, many other people, kind of um, someone who's trying to stop all that from happening. So, yeah, we have a podcast called Crackdown, which is uh, 
well, kind of a crew of us uh, who've been activists in the overdose crisis for harm reduction. We we put it together, and uh, yeah, I play music, and I uh, I will write uh, and hopefully get paid for that uh, from time to time, and uh, yeah, it stitches all together to be a pretty busy day. Yeah, for sure, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, time out to chat with me. For sure. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the overdose crisis. Um, you're kind of at ground zero, and you're you're in Vancouver, East Hastings, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's certainly where uh, I'm part of the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, and that's where the uh, that's a drug user union, kind of an activist group, and yeah, we meet uh, right on me on East Hastings. Yeah. So what? Describe a little bit about the crisis yeah, for the for listeners that aren't familiar or only kind of familiar with the headlines around the opioid crisis in North America. Um, can you give us a bit of a background on what's been happening and and what some of the what some of these fights are? These like what are you what are we advocating for here? Sure. Um, for me, this has been a long time coming. Like uh, I've been around long enough to have seen. Well, this is my second overdose crisis, so I've seen it before. Uh, in the 1990s, there was a you know, strong heroin in Vancouver, and a lot of people were uh, dying, and they declared a public health emergency then in, in the city of Vancouver. As in 2016, they again declared a public health emergency in the province of BC. So uh, this is a, a sort of a very predictable um, systemic thing. It's not a force of nature. It's not a surprise. Uh, it, it, it sort of happens um, under any type of prohibition. So like uh, you prohibit alcohol, uh, everyone's drinking beer. Then the day after the prohibition law comes into effect, it's moonshine time, you know, because they got to make it smaller and more compact and easier to shift around. And so then during prohibition, people start to get sick off of the bootleg moonshine. And, you know, some people went blind, some people died. Same kind of thing with um, prohibited drugs. Uh, and it's been a long march to where we are now uh, from in Canada about 1908 is when the Opium Act was passed. And so shortly thereafter, people were doing heroin instead of smoking opium and then shooting heroin. And then eventually uh, to the 1990s and the China white uh, strong heroin overdose crisis. And then where we are now, fentanyl and carfentanil. And each step of the way, law enforcement tries to crack down. You know, maybe people try to seal up the borders for this sort of stuff. And it just kind of uh, helps that arms race. You know, it makes us go on to the next strongest, the next strongest. So here we are in a policy created clusterfuck. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so what's the way out because from a from a rational forty thousand foot perspective i think it's hard not to see that the drug war has been an absolute failure on on any kind of level a human level for starters but also a a rep like a, a cost front and you know violence and you know, i think the only winners of the drug war are actually the drug cartels or anyone who's actually in the manufacturing business um could be law enforcement get of- something out of it too that's true yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah bigger bigger shinier toys yeah. um so what from a what's what's stopping this pol- like policy from shifting is it public perception is it because i mean we're, we're kind of walking through a legalization of marijuana in this country and lots of other jurisdictions in north america are looking at decriminalization and legalization you know at, at different kind of scopes is that basically what what needs to happen here is that we need to decriminalize or legalize and can you talk a little bit about the difference between yeah policy approaches i mean if if you think about this um it's 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 kind of like a a bad car accident on the motorway um you need first aid so first of all you, you just need to have the thing that helps people in the accident and that is um you know new needle distribution 
uh, naloxone, which can be used to reverse overdoses, and safe injection sites. All of these things are, let's try to prevent people from dying or getting really sick. Um, so that's that's the first thing, first aid. But but no motor accident would stop there. You would, you know, if people are really hurt, take them to the hospital, or even better, you design the roads. You redesign the systems so that you don't have those kind of accidents. And that kind of systemic redesign is what we need, and that's where you get uh, decriminalization, like you... You don't send people to jail after a motorway accident. You maybe send them to the hospital. So take it out of the criminal justice system for real. And legalization means um, that drugs are no longer available or, or no longer obtained mostly by people on the street via the black market that are unregulated and often toxic. They would be just manufactured, uh, you know, in a in a factory under regulated settings and you know, available, there's a bunch of different regimes that you could choose from of how to make them available from something like a liquor store to something like a more regulated prescribed environment. But you assure that supply, you assure its quality, and that has the effect of undercutting people who are um, right now uh, making it illegally and who are sometimes doing such a sloppy job or or, um, are so perniciously pursuing profits that they make it dangerous. Right, and I think, and one of the kind of talking points lately has been something you know around the safe supply. So is that basically what we're talking about here? Is some form of legalization so that it is manufactured and there is some sort of quality control? I think safe supply distribution for sure. And safe supply is kind of one of those words that means many things to many people. So I think ideally you would want a, a legalized, regulated drug supply. Um, safe supply could include a bunch of programs or things on the way to that you know so a bunch of exemptions or places where people can obtain uh, the kind of drugs that are killing them right now but uh, obtain a safer version of that um, by finding a little um, exemption or triggering a little exemption in the in the laws and that sort of thing but ideally eventually you want to um, tear down those laws to begin with mm-hmm. yeah and there, there's some places that have, been, that have been experimenting with that. And one of them, you know, your recent episode from your visit to Portugal was kind of a look at a system that's been further down that those path, that path than us. What did you find when, when you were there? What were some of the, the takeaways or the ahas or, you know, things that have gone well or not gone well with the, with the Portugal experiment? Yeah, uh, people all over the world sort of look at Portugal as, the, as this is a shorthand, like it's an emblem, a flag of some people who've solved the whole uh, drug problem. And uh, it's only partially true. In Portugal, if you are caught with a small amount of narcotics, um, you don't go to jail. You go to a, a sort of a dissuasion commission, it's called. You know, you, you basically go before some uh, social worker type people, and they maybe suggest to you to get into uh, some kind of um, treatment or on a methadone program or something like that. Drugs are still illegal in Portugal. It'll be the police that still catch you. They'll take the drugs away from you. And this dissuasion commission spends about 90% of its time uh, telling kids not to smoke hash. Uh, so it's it's definitely um, better than going to jail, absolutely, and a criminal record and all of that. And they have actually built out more. I think they've taken more seriously the job of building you know, treatment and, and methadone type systems in Portugal. So a lot of that money that went to the police, they sort of redeployed that uh, into the healthcare areas. But there's nothing in Portugal that would protect them from a kind of fentanyl crisis that's happening here because everybody's still using uh, illegal drugs that are that are sold on the street. And 
Right. Fentanyl hasn't got there yet, but when it does, um, you know, it's, it's going to really challenge their system, I think. Uh, when I was there, um, we were interviewing a drug user activist in a sort of this uh, plywood room that was about to be uh, the first safe injection site in the country there opening in a few days. So it was kind of a privilege to get to see them do that. But this was, um, you know, just a couple months ago. And mm -hmm. they've had the idea of safe injection sites on the books for maybe 20 years. So um, progress on building out some of the things they'd hoped to see there has been slow. And that activist was telling us, as other activists there did, that it's kind of a, it's a paradox in, in Portugal, or it's an unfinished kind of um, a set of changes, an unfinished revolution. Right, which I think is probably every, all drug policy across the, the world is probably unfinished experiment in some capacity just further along a spectrum absolutely decriminalization yeah. or legalization so and, i mean not uh, to take away anything from the great work that people have done there and the courage that portugal found to go a different way and especially since they started doing this 20 years ago you know um good for them 20 years ago we we didn't have a safe injection site in canada we were just humming and hawing about oh could we do it won't it be too scary and all that stuff so you know uh, good on them i, I think we just mm -hmm. need to sometimes um, not over-romanticize a model that we see somewhere else um, from far away here. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Um, let's talk a little bit about harm reduction and a little bit about safe injection sites and things like that. Um, because it seems to me that that's kind of where the conversation has stalled out, at least here in Alberta. It's, there's been some safe consumption sites open up um, in Calgary, down in Lethbridge, you know, a variety of places. And they kind of perpetually seem to be at risk of, of being shut down or, you know, something happening. There's always a, some sort of community strife around it and some, some politicking going on uh, at one level or another. Um, Insight in Vancouver, it's been operating now for how long? Uh, since Ten 2003. Years. 2003, so 15, 16 years now. Yeah. Um, what, what's the, or what, what is a safe injection site or a safe consumption site for listeners that aren't familiar with it? And how does it fit into the overall system of, of drug treatment. That's a place where you can use drugs, and if you overdose, someone will be there with naloxone to bring you back. Um, and some places uh, are run with a, with a nurse or medical professional. Some places are just run themselves by, by drug users, so peers of the people who are using it. Uh, some places have you know add-on services, uh, referrals to um, treatment or whatever else, and uh, some places are just this is the only thing they do. You know, some have been in a mm -hmm. tent. Some are temporary, like at a festival. They exist for a couple of days. They kind of pop up and go away. And they're really, they're a hack. They're, um, they're a patch, like a workaround on a really bad system. So the, mm -hmm. the bad system uh, puts all this toxic drugs, uh, you know, into the supply. And then, um, you know, you ask people to go into a safe injection site where everything is clean. Everything is new new syringe, new cooker, um, cleaned up, uh, you know, a very, you know, efficient, clean kind of uh, workspaces. <laughs> Everything is like that, except the drugs that you have to get and <laughs> score yourself and bring in. And so they're, they're um, very dangerous. And, but then someone will, you know, it's like, if you're, you know, you're playing Russian roulette and, and do it in an operating theater because then someone can pull a bullet. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's a bad metaphor, but it's it's <laughs> I'm trying to get at the idea that this is um, this is something this is not a dream, uh, the, an end point. This is like this is what we need right now, given the current carnage. 
And I right. think the the reason um, you're having so much uh, trouble in Alberta is not it's not specific to Alberta or Jason Kenney. Everywhere where there's been safe injection sites, there have been fights about them. We just happen to have had the fights here a bunch of years ago. So it, right. it's it's not new. The thing that's new is people. You know, uh, people have always hated drug users. There have been always loads of people who hate and scapegoat drug users. Um, it's just with people like Jason Kenney and Doug Ford and uh, maybe Andrew Shear, th- they're getting more organized. They're getting leaders. So whereas these groups of people would be kind of like um, angry business owners or whatever before, now they're um, a constituency, uh, you know, with someone right. who's articulating talking points and a policy perspective and, and has the levers of power to do something. So it's um, it's the backlash realized into political institutions in Canada. Yeah, and is the like what is the? Does it just come down to stigma? Like at the end of the day, does it just come down to um, not being able to identify with with people who use drugs, and therefore the ability to kind of pathologize them and hate them and and pun- try and punish the drug use out of them? Like are we still kind of rooted in that kind of addiction as choice? model a lot of people in society think that the the fix here is is enforcement and punish like punishing people out of drug use is that still kind of prevalent or what's the i think so but it's it's, it's connects to something bigger right it's like anything that's going wrong in your life that's your fault but by this ideology right so it's you know if you're if you get evicted or if you lose your job or if you have trouble getting a job or if you don't get the right schooling or god whatever else right all of these things we we are given the set of ideas where you kind of blame the individual, you look away from the broader systemic forces that are um, such influences and so deeply affect our lives. And it's so it's just taking that same logic as everywhere else. Just, you know, blame the victim, blame the person, blame the individual, and applying it to drug users. But also, um, our very existence is criminalized. So there's a set of laws that actually instructs people on who's a good person and who's a bad person. And if you engage in these behaviors that are uh, prohibited by law, you're a bad person. I mean, that's the law actually exists to separate us out. You know, it says Mm -hmm. this group of people, you go off and you go to jail and you actually lose a whole bunch of your rights. You know, and we all we all uh, the rest of society is just like uh, we're grateful that those people are are away from us now. You know, and and uh, Mm -hmm. and so this is criminalizing a a big section of people. And I think that, you know, individuals in society probably just. uh, pick up on that sort of um, that sort of idea that stigmatization that's set from the top you know from the legislatures mm-hmm. yeah despite the kind of massive hypocrisy of the whole thing when you actually look at you know the impact of say alcohol or tobacco on on society and the real human and money costs that those two you know legal addictions cost us on an ongoing basis not to even touch things like social media and internet and you know it's fascinating to me for a number of years i get calls from parents on a regular basis asking if we treated video game addiction and i'm like mm, no we don't yet but it's coming because it seems like addiction you know for me addiction explains human behavior better than just what any other model of human behavior that's out there and i you know i've pretty firmly believe that we're probably all addicted to something um some of them are legal and some of them are not legal and that is typically like that that becomes a distinction one is socially sanctioned and the other is not and it's pretty arbitrary like you say it's only been since 1908 in canada that opioids have been 
or certain opioids have been um, been illegal. And we actually trace the history of the drug war. It's a pretty recent phenomenon, um, at least here in North America. For sure, um, you know. And I was uh, I'm one of those people who's wired to opioids. Like if I stopped taking methadone. Uh, tomorrow morning i would be pretty sick you know and um yeah. i don't want, i don't want to do that um <laughs> and i i think that is definitely true for for people like me who used heroin every day who are wired um that's that's that sort of sets up a circumstances but uh the vancouver coastal health did an analysis of the overdose fatality statistics from 2017 and found that 60 percent of the people who died from overdose aren't like me they're not wired they're not every day every day every day they're just occasional users you know even recreational users so that's more than half of the people who died of overdose if they went to a doctor they wouldn't have been able to get prescribed methadone like me they wouldn't have been able to get treatment they just mm -hmm. wouldn't even qualify like a doctor would look at them and say you do not have what they call substance use disorder or opiate use disorder or whatever uh so it's yeah. it's interesting that we we've you know they've um these efforts to stigmatize and kind of gate off and, and criminalize uh, uh, people like me have widely now spooled out and affected uh, loads and loads of other people who, who are not uh, daily drug users, who are not um, in the life as much. And uh, I think that that um, constituency is, is um, well, like, drug, like daily drug users also, is not well organized or well understood. We don't we don't vote as a block. We probably don't vote in as many numbers as as other people. We don't have great economic power, um, so it's it's pretty easy for governments to ignore us. Do you mind? Can we dig into your your methadone a little bit and your your journey through through drug use? So, what? Uh, how long have you been on methadone? Uh, since the the mid two thousands, and there was sort of an overlap. Um, you know, I it, when you. When you start methadone, you don't. Not everybody immediately stops doing heroin. So there was several years when I was doing both, and then I, I did less and less, and eventually I, I did none. And so I haven't haven't used uh, anything but methadone for a, a several years now. And what what difference has that made for you when it comes to when when it comes to life? Well, that switch from heroin to methadone. Um, what's what what was the impact of that? Well, it's uh, economic, right? Um, it's very expensive to be wired to heroin. And so you spend all your time trying to get money to pay for heroin so that you're not sick. Uh, it's also dangerous on your health because there's lots of contaminants in heroin. Your your supply isn't guaranteed, so you do have periods of dope sickness. Uh, so it kind of ruins your ability to do other things. And it also puts you in a precarious situation with law enforcement. So, um, yeah, cops, health, and money, uh, that those things really <laughs> end up dominating your life. And now I'm sort of liberated from those things. Uh, the molecule in methadone isn't all that different from the molecule in heroin. You know, they're both synthetic opioids. They both come from the same basic idea. But one is given to me by a pharmacist, uh, and the other is from a drug dealer. And um, the fact that I'm on the pharmacist one now means that I have a much better quality of life. And... Uh, you know, if we could, if we could get that for everybody, you know, you could, you could do the same principle with, um, really a lot of drugs. You could, you kind of have substitutes and methadone doesn't work for everybody. So you, you know, I, I definitely believe in, um, prescribed heroin, uh, prescribed anything to replace the street version of, of what people are using. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, 
it all strikes me as so arbitrary uh, definitely. at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what, when you think about your advocacy work, what, what exactly are, are we advocating for and what do, how, what's the pathway to get there? Like what's the pathway to get to a place where it isn't so arbitrary that we are having real conversations about decriminalization or legalization or some combination of policy framework that alleviates this self-induced crisis that we've built? What, uh, what are you guys advocating strongest for right now? And, and how's that going? And how can people listening to this help in, in some regard? You know, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users uh, like wants to end the drug war. Um, but that has a lot of detailed kind of steps and campaigns involved in it. And so I'm involved in a few, but um, the group, you know, wants there to be some kind of justice and housing for people. Um, uh, people are, uh, there's a bunch of subgroups in Vandu that work on methadone or the um, issues to do with colonization and the drug war or to do with, um, uh, um, heroin-assisted um, treatment patients uh, have organized a group there. There's so there's there's a bunch of campaigns, and um, I guess we oscillate painfully between tr trying to think about what you just asked. You know, how do we get from here to there? So we oscillate between that, and we oscillate between that, and just being here, like trapped in the chaos that is now. Uh, because we have our own members and leaders dying uh, frequently. So we're losing them. We're experiencing the trauma of that, organizing their memorials and missing their leadership. And it's really, uh, it affects your ability to organize. It affects your ability to just manage and cope personally. But it, the group, you know, has seen stronger days because of, how bad things are and that things have been bad for like this like quite bad for three years or you know maybe three and a half years uh so it's it's kind of uh it's kind of difficult sometimes to see all the way down the road to that um to that place um and i think that also you you experience that uh you know we're having an election campaign right now and no one's really talking about this you know, like 13,000 mm -hmm. people have died since the last election. Um, and it's not the number one issue. It's not even the number 10 issue. It's just not mm -hmm. there. And tonight we're going to have a leaders debate, I guess the first and only English language leaders debate. And I, I'll, I'll listen in, but I'm not going to hold my breath that there's going to be, a, you know, a big section of that on opioids and, and, and the overdose crisis. And if there is, um, please... <laughs> I love to be wrong about stuff like that, uh, but it it is it is difficult. Um, it's difficult to do that. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. It's one of those, I mean, really complex issues with lots of competing priorities and competing perspectives on uh, on what the right path is. I imagine even internally um, within Bandu that there's different perspectives on what priorities are, are, and it can be hard to kind of have a coherent message at the best of times for any any group that's advocating for big social change and so but i'm always interested in kind of trying to simplify to the point of utility usefulness and because sometimes when i think people look at some of these these problems in society or these issues they just throw their hands up in the air and say like i don't know what the fuck to do right because it's so complex and so 
Well, let's uh, maybe. Yeah, I mean, uh, go ahead. I, I guess I, I guess I made that too complicated. A generation ago, Vandia was calling for a safe injection site, and we won that. And now we're calling yep. for safe supply. And okay. last time we won the safe injection site, in part through civil disobedience, which meant opening unsanctioned illegal safe injection sites first. Um, yep. And maybe civil disobedience will be required to get safe supply. And in fact, there are some incidences of that happening kind of on the down low already. So uh, it's it's that kind of continued spirit of of resistance that will bring us through. And and yes, there's kind of a unity around that demand. Um, and the picture I was painting a few minutes ago is to try and bring people, uh, you know, a little a little in closer. Like when you when you write the movie of something 20 years after it's happened, it looks a lot cleaner. But really, in the trenches, mm-hmm. it's just it's just a mess, <laughs> and it's it's yeah. it's hard, and it's and it's because of the uh, the the crisis that's been created. Yeah, this again kind of unnecessary, arbitrary crisis that we've imposed on ourselves through kind of confusing moral with uh, morality with what's right and wrong um, on the on the individual level. So, um, addiction. What's your What's your perspective? You've mentioned a couple of times that you're wired for heroin. Um, what do you mean by that? And, you know, there's this kind of choice versus disease. Oh, sorry. I, I said wired to, have... wired to. Like it's uh, wired, well, wired is like uh, when you get wired, you're, it means like you're you're hooked. You're doing it every day. If you stop, you're sick. You know, like you're. Gotcha. Di- yeah, that's so that's what I mean. I, do, I don't have any okay. like great brain chemistry ideas that somehow the architecture of my brain is wired for heroin. <laughs> Maybe it is, but I don't I'm not that smart. I don't know. Gotcha. Um, what what is the what is your perspective on? Because I, I it seems like we've with given any issue in society we're, we we just polarize it. We say it's this or it's that, and it becomes we try and make it really black and white. And so I'm trying to not do that on the podcast, and actually trying to have some more nuanced conversations about some of these topics. And addiction is certainly one of them that's that's close to my heart. Um, and I see kind of the two camps. There's the choice camp, which really, if you follow that train of thought, no wonder we have a drug war because we should be able to just police our way, you know, reward and punish our way out of something if it's truly a choice. Um, And then there's the disease model, this really biomedical, um, let's medicalize this and let's call it a disease. And I have equal issues with that perspective as well, because I don't know that it's, I think it's certainly more helpful than the the choice model, but it still feels incomplete um, in, in lots of the work that I've done and things that I've kind of been thinking about. What's your take on addiction around what drives it? Um, and I realize that's a big question, but from your own perspective and also the perspectives that you've been able to generate through years of advocacy work, um, if we're, if we wanted to not just talk about the, the other side, the safe supply and the harm reduction and the policy framework around supporting people with addiction, but if we actually fundamentally wanted to address addiction, what are some of those levers that you would start pulling on or what are some of the things that you'd think about? Um, so I guess in the beginning of that you said what's what do i think it causes it or what's at the root of addiction and um i don't know you know my experience was uh like some pretty fucked up shit happened to me and uh i was pretty alienated and you kind of go go along at war with yourself and then when i was pretty young i encountered this thing that all of a sudden shut off that uh alienation and all that shit and that was that was heroin and um and then I was like, "Oh, this is great. This is this must be what everybody else is doing all the time. Must be how come everyone's just a functional person out there." And that's kind of <laughs> how I used it. And so that sort of I don't know 
where in your spectrum that falls. But I also, uh, when I was pretty young, I went out with this girl and she used dope with me sometimes and then didn't and sometimes did. And she never got wired. You know, she, it, and had it been me using in that pattern, I would have totally been, um, that would have been enough for me uh, to get wired. But she didn't, it's like, and I guess she didn't, the way she says it, she didn't have those things in her life that, that sort of, that she was using it to block out. So it felt nice and then you didn't need it, you know? Uh, so I guess some of it has to do with the experiences you've had before, but I don't really know. You know, I don't, I don't know whether it's, uh, genetic or in your brain or, or I, I, I can't believe it's reducible to trauma. Like I, that seems too simple to me. So I like that you have kind of a nuanced approach, but I'm sure that, um, trauma early in your life is, is part of it. And then those trauma explanations also take a little bit of agency away from us as, uh, like as adults and also there's lots of people walking around with trauma who aren't dope fiends like me so uh it's 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 part of the explanation i'm sure but but i don't know you know uh, i know that also um so when i was using heroin every day if i stopped i'd be sick i really was uh, driven to keep using and the same thing applies to methadone but i'm not this isn't called an addiction or i don't know what the words would apply to it but a lot of the same things are there but mm -hmm. it, but it's also not a problem so or it's not a problem for me and if i'm on methadone for the rest of my life i don't i'm not bothered by that very much you know so like i it's there's lots of there's lots of stuff to unpack i guess yeah it seems like maybe the the substance is is less important than the behaviors that it kind of generates or the, the context right so for example you heroin you're using. you're uh you know you're you know you're breaking up you're messing up relationships with your family you're doing stuff for money that you would not otherwise do that you don't like doing uh, you're spending all your time and your life on it you're taking risks those are the behaviors and people would say oh wow is that does that come from something in your childhood or something to do with the drug or where does that come from and it, it comes from the law Right. Like those things, those things are there because of the law. So it's it's like the real problem with addiction is the law. You know, if people mm -hmm. if people can get wired and get unwired without having these terrible wrecking balls arcing through their life and destroying everything, then it's it's a much easier road. You know, but but the law just makes it so much more difficult for people to uh, to make their way. Yeah, we'd always talk about, you know, substance use as the symptom, not the not the cause, right? And there's something else that's driving distress, you know, often for young people. And it's a bit different working with, you know, teenagers, kind of 13 to 17-year-old. You know, we weren't necessarily dealing with the, like, really wired to heroin, hadn't been, you know, daily heroin users for a long time. Um, and so, but inevitably, you know, substance use is being driven by some underlying mechanism in life and, and certainly i think for some people that's that's childhood trauma adverse childhood experiences for some it's going to be just the perpetuation of that wrecking ball phenomenon that's come through their life and is causing pain you know the, the pain starts to be i mean become recursive at, at some point i actually wonder how everybody out there who's not on any opioid right now manages because you know where the apocalypse is nigh and uh, real actual authoritarianism is rising up all over the world like there's a lot of things that are kind of traumatizing and terrifying <laughs> out there you know and so um 
like do do people drink because they're terrified of climate everybody's change? Everybody's numbing. I bet they do. Yeah, I bet. Everybody numbs. Yeah. Everybody just numbs with something else. Lots of Facebook scrolling and uh, Twitter. Absolutely. I, I think it's something about being a human being, you know? Yeah. yeah, like we all we are all on the planet and the planet has things that can get you messed up and seems seems like it's kind of part of the deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, part of part of the human nature, I think, yeah. is the ability to just get get addicted to something and to find ways to numb our pain and unless we address some of these underlying conditions that are giving rise to the pain i think that that's we're just going to be in this loop for a while uh, it can certainly be a less painful loop if we take some of these steps towards legalization and safe supply and like that just makes intuitive sense um t- to me and you know something for us to, to work towards um what do you find most most meaningful about advocacy work so what is so you do, you seem seem like you do a bunch of different things. There's your crackdown pod. Um, there's some writing and just kind of general advocacy work in Vancouver and across the country. What what's the most meaningful thing that you find yourself engaged in? Uh, I, I I mean I guess it's I I've been a, a drug user activist for only a small part of the time that I've been a drug user and. I didn't aspire to do that. You know, I didn't think this is what I'd really like to do with my time. In fact, when I kind of um, settled onto methadone, I just thought, God, I can finally forget about all this shit. You know, I can kind of put it behind <laughs> me and stuff. But uh, just so many people I knew were dying. I guess I had survivor's guilt, really. And I also just had this yeah. um, desire to protect my friends and, and the people in my community. And I guess a selfish desire to, to protect myself because you know, you do relapse, like shit happens. And, um, I don't, I don't want to die myself, you know? So, uh, it's, it's not like a, an inspirational calling for me. It's just like this, it's this thing that you got to do. And, um, so much of it is painfully boring. Like a a real lot of it is being in meetings or taking the bus to meetings (laughs) or being on the computer and writing up the minutes from meetings, you know? (laughs) And, uh, I mean, but that's what, that's what all organizing is. You know, it's like, um, bringing the community together, being part of a community that's being brought together. And, uh, the two or 3% of it is the, is the civil disobedience or the demonstration or something like that. But, um, a lot of it is schlepping around big bags of posters or whatever else. And um, I think that's okay. I think that's just, that's part of what you do to be a, a fully fleshed out human being, you know, as you take an interest in what's happening to people around you, what's happening to your community. And it's just like, um, you know, it's like they said on Seinfeld, we live in a society, you know, we like you have to do that. <laughs> the place is just a disaster if people don't do that. So, and I just, I've always known lots of people who do do that, you know, um, all around me my whole life there have been really great trade unionists and people fighting for immigrants and refugees and um you know one of the people who kind of was teaching me how to be an activist was this guy who uh who you know he he paved the way for a lot of people who were uh fleeing the pinochet regime in chile he got he got locked up in the stadium there with people back in the day when when the coup happened against allende and all that and uh you know he just he just showed that those those are his people you take care of your people you and there's loads of people living all around east vancouver because he helped find a way out from a a dictator through the atacama desert to the city and 
it's it's what you do, you know. Hmm. Well, I think it's. I'd like to think it's what people do, but I think that there's a short supply. Sure, of, and of I know there's people listening who don't, right? And I, I, I'm not. I'm not wagging a finger at you. But believe me, to to those folks, because we have my whole life. There has been a constant commercial running for. There is no alternative. Like the this is the natural state of affairs. The current organization of society, free markets, and you know, liberal capitalism, and all this stuff. Like this is the way it's supposed to be, um, and and we're just told again and again that 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 you 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 can't change it because whatever you would change it to would be worse. So don't try. Um, and I think that's very dissuasive to people getting involved in stuff. Like the idea that it's hard to change things. I also think there's this thing going on of. Um, I'm still trying to find the right name for it, but it's like when when, when all the leaders are kind of like, yeah, we'd love to do this thing. This sounds great. We care about the environment or we care about you poor little drug users or whatever, but they actually then don't spend any political capital or they don't actually try to change things. They just allow the status quo to kind of permeate through um, the existing mechanisms of power and control. You know, it's kind of like it's um, it's just it's allowing – momentum of of how things are to continue and that's a kind of gaslighting maybe you would call it uh, the phantom power of uh of the status quo or something <laughs> like that phantom power for yeah. those of you not in radio or in a band is uh this button on your console you press to give your microphone a little bit of electricity and so calling something in politics phantom power is super punk rock and cool and i'm gonna brand it right now so like don't steal it off me phantom power <laughs> yeah that's the fifth type of power yeah there you go yeah. phantom power <laughs> i love it yeah no i think it's uh here's your podcast episode title yeah totally phantom power with garth mullins <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think yeah there aren't really any kind of doesn't seem like there's a straight road to the to that conversation in society like it seems like the the polarization and i was just chatting about this with a friend the other day about like just the the entrenched polarized like encampments that we seem to have developed along the political spectrum and you can't have a nuanced conversation anymore you can't have a real conversation about anything on either end of the spectrum left or right um doesn't seem like there's a strong centrist kind of rational practical voice um anywhere and maybe that's just social media and that's just a bubble of social media but um what are some of the ways that you have combated kind of the pol i imagine you just deal in polarized conversations all the time with, with with politicians and with policymakers and with the police and with with people that how do you how do you negotiate that polarization in order to have a bit more of a nuanced conversation Oh, I just edit the tape. You know, you just go back to the studio and you clean it all up. You take all my swearing out. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I I don't know. I guess what you do is you you start to have an intentional conversation. And you, you know, when, when I sit down to do it, I really try to work with my team to research who we're talking to. So we pay them the respect of knowing about them, even people that we disagree with. You know, we've interviewed... Um, a family uh, on the podcast that, that lost a kid but also wanted Jason Kenney to get in and, and wanted capital punishment. And, you know, I, I felt really, uh, I really sympathized or empathized with them um, for, for losing their kid. You know, I've lost some people really close to me. But at the same time, I couldn't disagree with their solutions more. And, mm -hmm. you know, you kind of find that conversation, um, find your way through that. Uh, we also talked to a cop. 
uh, the, the spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. And, um, you know, I found a way to joke around with him. Like we had this, uh, this interview in the police station and, you know, we really, we really put the, we turned the heat up on him and, uh, it was a good interview. I'm, I'm very happy with it, but I was joking. I was like, so wh what would you do if you knew that I had a flap of heroin in my pocket right now? And he kind of like, uh, his jaw dropped and stuff. Right. But I was just fucking with him. Like, of course I'm not going to walk into the cop shop with a flap of heroin, but you kind of, you, you just allow a little space for people's humanity to come out. But also it's just that. So often you're defending your own or you're, you're in the position where you have to defend the, um, the humanity of drug users. And I go back and forth on that one, you know, like people on Twitter or people mm -hmm. out in the world or writing letters or calling into a radio show or something. They, they want to knock your humanity and, um, you know, say, oh, drug users or zombies or scumbags or criminals or whatever. And, and some really even worse stuff that it's just like a, I don't want to repeat, but, um, you don't know whether to engage them and try to, because there's so many other people that think like them, you kind of engage that audience and try to convince them or whether you're just like, no, this is not up for debate. You know, like mm -hmm. the starting point of any conversation is to acknowledge everybody involved has, has some humanity. I don't really know what to do about that, you know, but, uh, I, I think that, um, we, we have to watch out for, for the backlash that's being organized by Kenny and Ford and the likes, because they're making it harder and harder to have a conversation about this in the last year or so. It's become a lot more difficult to have certain conversations because um, people are just so whipped up into fear and fury about safe injection sites in Ontario and Alberta and small town BC uh, that they believe they're the cause of every social ill for the last hundred years and it's i mean i'm not quite exaggerating but i because i have kind of gone on to some of those facebook groups that are trying to organize you know a protest outside of a safe injection site and i start by you know trying to you know politely but you know say here's here's the other perspective and you very quickly wind up with people saying some pretty nasty stuff and that's no surprise to anybody online it's it, it it's just part of it but it's it's that level of vitriol has been um, has been resident but disorganized, and now it's been really um, lit aflame by by the right recently. And I I don't know what happens if we have a sheer government. I don't know what that will mean and, and how he'll do that. But as a, a student of Harper, as the guy who's supposed to be Harper with a smile, and as a <laughs> you know a sort of a, a fellow traveler there with uh, with Kenny and Ford, I I can't imagine it would be any different than that. Yeah, I think from a kind of a broad social perspective, a conservative government, while Ontario is proving to be a disaster, Alberta's right behind them um, and kind of has been a disaster from all intents and purposes, you know, with a little blip of the NDP government over the past four years, shifting some social policy around. It's been it's been pretty, pretty right wing and pretty, uh, pretty conservative in its approach to things like um, drug use. And addiction. Um, you know, yeah, I just I just add a, as a as a postscript yeah. on that last thing about having nuanced conversations stuff. I'm not always able to do it either. Like, uh, there's an editor of of the Sun News uh, newspaper chain there uh, of Sun News, which owns a couple of papers in Alberta, a few in Ontario, all over the place. Uh, anyway, he's the editor in chief, Mark Tui, and he tweeted out some pretty nasty things about drug users. Um, you know, keeping people alive just so they can overdose again is a waste of money. Blah blah blah, like that. 
And uh, we were talking about that on Canada Land. In fact, Jesse Brown read those tweets to me, and I hadn't heard them before. You know, and I, I, he said, well, what do, you, what do you say to that guy? You know, what do you say to people like that? What do you say when you hear comments like that? And I just said, oh, fuck that guy, you know? And so sometimes I'm not having the nuanced conversation. Sometimes I'm going to say, no, you don't get to have a polite conversation about whether we live or die. We're not like uh, just a, this subject to be bandied around like that. So sometimes it's actually our role to do the opposite is to is to polarize things, but to try to mm-hmm. polarize them in the sort of life and death um, uh, stakes in which they really exist. Yeah, and that's one of the so one of the tenets of right use of power framework, which is a, a really interesting kind of ethical framework that grew out of boulder colorado of all places 20 or 30 years ago um by this woman cedar barstow she's kind of a my vision of yoda incarnate she's about 80 years old and uh and just a really wise beautiful woman who spent a lot of time in in psychology um in variety of different roles and she wrote a piece a, a book right use of power and it describes power dynamics and it describes this um, up and down power dynamic and you know, when you're in a marginalized community or you're oppressed or you don't have power in the system, we often take a uh, motivated action as resistance, right? If we take it as um, we pathologize that behavior and we say, well, you need to be more polite. You need to engage more politely. And it's like, well, actually, fuck that, right? You can be polite if you have power, right? Those of you who have power should be polite and you should be the ones using your power well. You shouldn't be tweeting out if you are the editor-in-chief of a major media empire in a country, you probably shouldn't be tweeting out that some people aren't worthy of living or aren't worthy of our, our care and attention, right? Like that mm-hmm. just, that, that strikes me as, as a problem. So I wouldn't worry too much about being too polite. But I think that, um, you know, it comes down to, um, for me, when I'm trying to have these conversations, something I found to be useful and actually just read something or heard something the other day about um, facts in society and how they don't actually matter like facts we're just we're in this like post-truth facts don't matter because it's all about your dogma and your idea ideology about an idea um but they do matter when you have an agreement between parties on where you want to get to or what the real problem is and so i spent a lot of time trying to get to like what's the real problem here like if we can get a shared problem definition on the table then then we can start to have a nuanced conversation or then we can pull some facts in and say well actually did you know that this approach actually costs us 10 times less than a policing or enforcement approach or whatever it happens to be the number um those tend not to matter if people don't care if we don't have some sort of shared or common agenda and so you know i I love i love the getting to a shared humanity place but also a shared perspective on what it is we're even trying to do yeah i Um, I think facts don't matter maybe something that's that's been true or, or true a lot for a long time i think facts start to matter more and more um when you have a stake in something right like mm-hmm. if if you're just sitting in your basement and talking about flat earth it doesn't matter but if you get up and have to go to work and your job is being a pilot then it absolutely matters <laughs> you know it's the whole navigation doesn't work nothing radio nothing works if you think the world is flat you're just yeah, you're screwed, right? So it's like if you actually have a stake in safe injection sites, for example, then the facts about them really do start to matter a lot. You know, and and even a neighbor that's worried about um, uh, discarded needles, the facts should start to matter as they get into it more too. If they really believe that there'll be mm-hmm. less needles around their neighborhood, 
if they close down the safe injection site, then they have a safe injection site with a needle collection program as part of it. Then um, they're, they, they, haven't, they haven't yet really realized what their stakes are or they haven't yet realized what the facts are. But as you go down that, uh, that road together, um, you'll start to realize that. I think that sometimes they're actually talking about property values or other things, so it, it may mm -hmm. not be perfectly clear like that. But um, you know, once people have a real, a real stake and real investment in something, then yeah, facts matter a lot, right? Like facts and science matter if you're having a space program because you want to have the right size bolts or whatever. Facts matter if you and your friend are going to go meet and drive somewhere. You got to agree on the destination and have a map or whatever, like. All that stuff is important if you're going to do something. I think part of the reason why we have uncivil discourse is there's just so many wankers around that have no role, no investiture, no stake in any of it that are just kind of armchairing it and throwing in something they don't know anything about, right? Like you, you get those people at parties all the time, and eventually people mock them a little bit or boot them out. They just get tired or don't invite them back. But there's it's hard to not invite someone to your Twitter conversation or something, you know? <laughs> Or the comment section of the uh, the editorial page. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think you know when I think when I hear at stake, you know, I think of incentives and consequences. Like, what are, what am I gonna like? What's the reward here? What's the cost? What's the benefit? Um, what are some of the incentives for society or for a community around some of these conversations? So you know, safe injection sites being being one aspect of that, but also kind of legalization. What would some of the incentives and some of the consequences of some sort of decriminalization or legalization of some of these um, narcotics um, similar to what we've seen kind of with marijuana um, recently what like why would we want to aside from the human cost and like we just park that but i imagine that there's some economic benefits um less money spent on policing and healthcare for starters um but what are can you can you walk us through um what a proposed kind of safe supply policy framework might look like and what might be the why, why might we want to do that i mean they go from the concrete to the abstract right so first of yeah. all it's just like people should support this kind of change because the chance of you living your whole life without having people close to you that are involved in drugs or you're using drugs it's so low right so the the yeah. people who are directly close to you or you will benefit from this by being alive by not dying so that's a pretty concrete uh, thing right there. Um, secondly, and a, a little bit removed, but not that far, is that it requires a huge, um, almost like a police state around the world to run the drug war. Uh, there's a lot of surveillance. There's a lot of uh, court time. There's a lot of police stops. There's a lot of police in neighborhoods. There's a lot of activity around that that affects everybody. Um, Another thing is that if people are having to grind to get up the money to get their dope every day, that does um, involve like sometimes property crime. It does mean that people are, are dealing drugs. It means when the police arrest people who are supplying drugs, it creates a vacuum. People will fight with each other to fill a vacuum. Sometimes shots are exchanged. People can get in the way of that. It makes things less safe, right? Like that, that's not, that's not really good for anybody. Uh, and then economically, yeah, you're right. All that stuff costs money. You know, it costs way more money to have someone go through the courts and the cops and the emergency rooms than just to get some kind of uh, prescribed treatment or some uh, access to something that's just regulated and safe. It's, it's, 
I don't know the perspective that it doesn't make sense from. I think there's an ideological perspective that it doesn't make sense from for people. Uh, it's the personal choice thing. Um, it's the also the flip side of that is this weird thing about, um, well, you're just using it to feel good. And, and that's like a sin, you know, and we're all kind of this, at least in English Canada, there's this kind of Calvinist, dour, Protestant thing all kind of baked in, you know, uh, oh, we can't, you know, life is suffering, you can't avoid that. I don't know what that all is, but that's in there somewhere too. Uh, so, um, yeah, so it might cost you some of your dour Calvinism. Uh, I, I don't know that in, in terms of the cost. That That's maybe in the plus column, actually. So, uh yeah, I'm, you might enjoy life more. Yeah. You might second guess this. Uh, yeah, that's right. Self-induced yeah. suffering. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't want to keep you too long. It's we're almost up on an hour here. Um, what kind of action can people take to support this type of conversation? Kind of a conversation about facts and a conversation about the drug war and get involved in a way if they're not in in vancouver if they're somewhere else in the country is there is there a method to or a preferred way to to help support this kind of cause is it writing letters to politicians is it combating stigma online when you encounter it i mean there's probably lots of different ways but do you have a few ways and i'll obviously i'll link to your your show to crack down and uh, some of the other work that you've been doing um in the show notes but where can people go to, to learn more or to take some action? Sure. I mean, I know that's the answer that um, I'm supposed to give is, well, you should listen to the podcast and support us on Patreon. <laughs> but um, <Yeah>. <laughs> actually, <laughs> I'll take care of that. Uh, for thanks. Uh, I think that people probably know what's going on in their community way better than I do. And so you might have a sense there. Like this place really needs a safe injection site. And all the mayor and all the police and everybody, all the local officials are dead set against it. You and your friends might be the right people to start one up. They're, they're always started like this. They always start a, as a grassroots initiative that is unsanctioned at first and then eventually may receive official permission and even funding and become an institutionalized part of a health authority or something like that. But they all start with people first, you know, people just taking the initiative. And that's fine. You know, or, or there are always precursor sites like that that lead to um, the more established things that people are more used to. And I think that's a really good thing to do. Um, back in the day, I used to get uh, clean syringes, new syringes off. Um, <clears throat> this guy who, you know, worked in the medical professions and would steal <laughs> syringes from work and <laughs> hand them out to people because there was a huge HIV epidemic here. And if you're somewhere that doesn't have that, you can order them on Amazon and do that yourself. So people can can see um, what's happening. You know, if there's if there's like some kind of uh, if there's some kind of discarded needle problem where you are, there there's there's a lot of people who will pick them up. Like phone numbers you can call often. If there isn't, those programs can be started. But sometimes just putting a poster up in your in, in the, like the lobby of your apartment building that says you see an abandoned needle you just call this number and instead of people going and having spending 20 hours on facebook ranting about it they could just have it done with you know mm -hmm. uh yeah so it's like from the big to the small there's a election going on right now i don't know if we're going to air with your podcast before election day it'll probably be after okay but we'll 
We'll see. Yeah. So forget that suggestion. Uh, <laughs> actually, anytime there's an election, you know, um, it's it's good to go to those all candidates meetings and make a nuisance of yourself and force people to be specific. And uh, we don't need to be polite uh, when the stakes are so high. You know, uh, I know. You know, my my mom would say that politeness helps you get your message across better and sometimes that's true but not always so sometimes you're quite right to say fuck that guy and uh if if that if that comes up for you at your all candidates meeting or your race for mayor or local dog catcher or whatever then good then say it you know um and if you're uh a drug user or a group of drug users there's nothing replaces organizing a drug user union and it's so easy to do the Vancouver Area Networks, uh, Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users started in a park um, with a pizza. It's it's like extremely low barrier. There's no there's no trick to it. There's no instruction book. You just get people together and say what's going on. What are people pissed off about? And there's your there's your issues, your guide to action. You know, down the road, you're making a manifesto and uh, you know, sort of a a group process and electing a board and all that. But yeah, that's that's probably the best thing to do. That's how we won stuff in Vancouver is drug user activism and organizing. Yeah, no, I, I love that advice and I love the that little line in there, but you know, people first. Start with people because I think that sometimes, you know, this stigmatization and dehumanization processes that work with, with addiction, um, is is the first place to start and is to uh yeah, go go find your go find yeah. your friends and allies and the community of people you're going to work with. It's hard to do stuff by yourself. Like I don't know if writing a letter to a politician does anything. It hasn't ever for me, and it's super yep. alienating to sit by yourself at a computer and write a letter that you don't know if anyone's going to see. It's like <laughs> it is not it is not motivating. It is demotivating. You know, you need something that helps you mobilize to do it the next day. So, yeah, finding other humans that care about the same stuff you do. That's always that's how everything changes. I think you know. Yeah, I, uh, I remember a quote from a guy, uh, Paul Bourne. He does a bunch of work around, out in Ontario, around communities. And he said, it doesn't matter what the problem is, community is the answer to it. And so I think that that's something to, to keep in mind as we look at some of these issues around around drug use and, and you know, lots of things in, in the society that we live in, is that community is the answer to it. So, Garth, thank you so much for joining me today. Definitely. I really thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having time. me. Okay, that's it for today's episode. You can learn more about Garth and the work that he's involved in at www.crackdownpod.com. And as always, thank you for listening to Powerful, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn and grow in the wise and skillful use of your power. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show as it helps us reach more listeners and have a bigger impact in the world. And speaking of impact, I'd love for you to check out The Doorway a scrappy little nonprofit doing incredibly important work with the street-engaged youth of Calgary. For more than 30 years, they've been helping our young people transition from street culture back into our mainstream community, and they do it incredibly efficiently and effectively. If you're looking for a cause to support this holiday season and throughout the year, I can't recommend them enough. 